Hey, and welcome to the podcast that brings you all the movie news and reviews that you didn't know that you wanted, but now realize that you cannot live without. I'm Frank, a proud Massachusetts native, and this is episode seven of Silver Screeners. If you've gotten this far into the show, episode seven, then thank you. Thank you for staying with it. And if you're new, glad you're listening. And thank you for hitting that play button. Since the last episode, I had my big movie moment. And that was my first return to the movie theaters in 14 months. Last weekend, I went to go see A Quiet Place 2 with my son, his friend, and his friend's father. Great guy. Now, maybe my euphoria over treading familiar movie theater lobby terrain that I hadn't seen in all that time affected my take on the whole thing. But let me tell you, I did not realize how much I missed it. I figured I missed it, of course. And I figured that once I stepped in, it would feel strange and and it would feel good. And it did, but I didn't realize to what extent being back worked. It felt like, it felt like coming home. Maybe that sounds a little over the top, but then again, I'm a movie guy. So what can you expect? (laughs) The last time I was in the theaters, I saw 1917 with my son. So that would have been January of 2020. So this, my first time back, May of 2021, was with my son again. So, you know, it makes for a good bookend, in my mind anyway. As for the movie itself, I got to be honest, it does hit all of the right beats for the most part. The original, and to an extent the sequel, really is an original and creative concept, something that Hollywood does not have enough of these days. So whenever it does happen, I'm always grateful. There's always the tendency, though, unfortunately, to sequelize something to death. But this is one cash cow that still has some milk left in the udders. I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to be generally a spoiler-free conversation about A Quiet Place 2, but please be aware that I will also be talking about The NeverEnding Story, and there will be a lot of spoilers on that one, so fair warning. At the very least, I'll do my best to speak in generalities, but as far as A Quiet Place 2 is concerned, the opening scene, which is a flashback, oh man, it it gives you the feels, especially when you remember how the first movie ultimately played out in its final 15 or 20 minutes. The cast returns, Emily Blunt, Noah Jupe, Millicent Simmons, they all return as the Abbott family, and they all still have that same chemistry among them that they had in the original, particularly the two kids. I do have to hand it to them. They bring on the right balance of pathos and intensity that make this scenario believable. And come on, I mean, it's a pretty outlandish scenario when you think about it, but what gives these two movies their dramatic weight is that they treat the material, the, the tone of the films, I mean. It's not, it's not over the top or gimmicky, not really. Maybe I'm wrong here, but it's just as much to me of a family drama as it is a thriller or a horror movie. The original especially managed to capture that spirit and made you care about these characters. That's what makes these kinds of movies work, the horror and thriller genre, I mean. You have to have A, a good story, and you have to have B, characters that you care about or or at least interested in, invested in. I would say that both the original and part two managed to pull it off thanks to believable family tensions, 
really skillfully shot and edited sequences. Despite everything, though, that I just said, I would argue that the original has a little bit more of both. Not that the sequel falls short, not that the sequel is simply a pathetic attempt to copy and paste, but I did find that Millicent Simmons, she plays the daughter Reagan, her story arc was, I thought, more emotional in the first one. There's more of a payoff in the sense that the pain and the guilt and the animosity and the defensiveness between her and her father, played by John Krasinski in the original, all of that, it comes around full circle. You know, what I mean is she spends most of the first film engulfed in all of this fear and bitterness that her, that her father somehow blames her, that he has sort of written her off because of what happens at the beginning of the original to her little brother. With the sequel though, all of that uncertainty and all of that self-blame has been pretty much resolved. So the direction that they take her character in, for me anyway, it wasn't quite as emotionally engaging. Not that the writing is subpar and not that the acting was subpar, just that, you know, where do you take it after such a climactic apex that gave the first one so much, so much of its power, you know? It was good to see them trying to bring her story in new directions rather than just give it the formulaic paint by numbers approach that usually defines so much of the horror genre. It's just a question though of whether this new direction that they are taking her in is viable enough to carry on the franchise beyond one sequel. I think that there is potential here. Millicent Simmons is a fine actress. She conveys this intelligence as well as this mix of vulnerability as well as confidence and it really fits the character so it's worth staying on board at least for a little while longer she is a fascinating actress to watch noah jupe who plays her on-screen brother his name in the film is marcus his character is on shakier ground i'm not talking about the actor he's a capable actor as well he was in honey boy in 2019 here in A Quiet Place 2, he pulls off a big shining moment that he's got at the beginning. The spotlight is totally his. He rises to the challenge. But overall, his character's journey is a hell of a lot thinner than his on-screen sister's. For the most part, he is there to react to everything that's going on around him. It's really Reagan who carries the sequel's narrative. Marcus Moore reacts to everything going on around him watching after the newborn baby, getting emotional over what his sister Reagan says or does, getting emotional over whatever his mother, Emily Blunt, whatever she says or does. He's not given much more to do really than to look to his left and then look to his right. I'm not saying that he's a desultory character. I'm not saying he is a distraction or extraneous or anything like that. He is crucial to the story, but if they do move forward with a third chapter as is most likely going to be the case. It would be nice to see something a bit more compelling going on with his character and not see all of the potential for his story fall into this sinkhole of audience apathy, you know? He's expressive, he's sympathetic, so I am rooting for him to have more to do than just metaphorically stand behind everybody else singing backup and going doo-wah, doo-wah. You know, let's give him the microphone, give him his own shot at a solo and see what he's got, what else he can bring to the table. 
But the second one does have its fair share of great moments too. There is one great scare and I begrudgingly have to admit that yes, it is a jump scare, which I know not everyone is on board with. They're done to death. It is a good one though. I have to admit it involves Reagan in the back seat as Killian Murphy and Jaiman Hansu. The three of them are driving away to safety. Speaking of which, Killian Murphy and Jaiman Hansu, both worthwhile additions to the cast. I was surprised that Hansu has nowhere near as much screen time as I would have thought that he was going to have. I mean, this guy, he's a two-time Academy Award when a two-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, he reliably offers his trademark understated dignity and ferocity that he stamps on all of the other characters in the movies he's done, like Amistad and In America and Blood Diamond. He does make the most of his brief but splashy role. Killian Murphy, who has a lot more screen time, Killian Murphy admirably brings dimension to what very easily could have been, very easily could have been a cardboard cutout of a character. But I mean, come on, he's Peaky Blinders. You know that he's going to deliver. If you're not familiar with Peaky Blinders, it's a Netflix series that he does. And he's the star in it. And just look it up. One final thought without giving too much more away, this second installment, A Quiet Place 2, it does, as I insinuated a minute ago, it does unquestionably leave the door wide open for a third entry. And, you know, hell, just take that freaking door off its hinges. <laughs> Seriously, it's that obvious that they're going for a third entry, so just get rid of that door because I'm okay with that. I would go see a third one. It's still a great ride. It's an appealing cast, so bring it on. My concern is that if after number three, if number three becomes a hit, if they decide to continue, then it might be going into the territory of if they want to go beyond a trilogy and they just want to Indiana Jones the hell out of the concept. I don't know. I'd have to say flag on the play on that one until we see if the sponge is all wrung out by the end of number three. So those are my two cents on A Quiet Place 2. I give it three stars out of four. Check it out. It is good and it is worth watching a worthy follow-up to a worthy film. And now, let's pivot to trivia. All right, so last time we talked about the upcoming Conjuring 3 and Poltergeist, and there was some chit-chat about the real-life husband and wife paranormal investigating team Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are the focal point of the Conjuring films, Back in the 1970s, they were still only known locally when they entered this allegedly haunted house. And that was last week's question. What famous haunted house did Ed and Lorraine Warren take a look at and hold a seance in? And the answer is the one, the only Amityville house in Long Island, New York. So thank you for sending in that answer, Stu and Al from the bi-weekly podcast show, Stu and Al Pod. Dude, what is this, like five for five or six for six? <laughs> uh, look up their show, Stu and Al Pod. I'd have to check out the archives, but you're, you're, this is a good streak you got going here. You're done good. Stu and Al Pod, you'll be glad you looked at it. Huzzah and hot damn. Like it has wings, a personalized meme is flying off through cyberspace and it is going to land in your inbox and it is a good one. I mean, this personalized meme is big. It's soaring with the eagles. It's got landing gear for God's sake. And everyone who is listening, here is the question for this week's episode. 
has to do with the never-ending story. The 1984 sentimental favorite, The Never-Ending Story, which was based on a book by a German author. And here is the question. Trying something different this time around, we're just going to do a true-false question. True or false, the author of the book, The Never-Ending Story, absolutely hated the film treatment of his work. So much so that he actually demanded that his name not be listed in the opening credits. He did not want the credit to say based on the novel by or based on the book by. You do not see that in the opening credits. True or false? So for a personalized meme and a shout out, email frankmandosa at yahoo.com and Mandosa is spelled with an A and an S. You can also find me hanging out on Twitter at filmbuff1974, Instagram at frankmandosa1974, and my Facebook film group, Silva Screeners, same name as this show. Take a crack at answering that true false trivia question. Leave your comments, post your thoughts, give movie recommendations, share ingredients for a smashing summertime beverage, preferably one that requires little umbrellas in its trade film ideas, anything. And finally, let's set our sights on today's featured film, the look back, if you will. So hop on board your luck dragon, hurdle through the air with me and come with me to chase those dumpster diving jerkwads down the city street because we are rewinding the clock to 1984. And if everything that I just said makes absolutely no sense to you, that's okay. Because what I just did was just basically summarize the first eight or nine minutes of the never ending story. Again, though, I do feel it is only fair and appropriate for me to say there will be spoilers. So if you have not yet seen the film and want to, if you have not seen it in a while and would like to revisit it and you don't want spoilers, you might want to hit that pause button and definitely come back to the episode later. So rewinding the clock to 1984, the story begins. It was midnight in the howling forest. The wind whistled through the tops of the ancient trees. Suddenly, something enormous crashed and rumbled through the eerie woods. So with those words, 10-year-old Bastian, he is plunged into the never-ending story. This is one of those movies that in current times screams from the peak of the mountaintop, 1980s. And oh dear Lord, is it ever <laughs> in a good way. The opening shot of the film after the credits, it's of Bastian. He sits up suddenly in bed, presumably from a nightmare, from a bad dream. He heads down to the kitchen for breakfast where he is greeted by his loving, but his stuffed shirt of a father. The father's all ready for work, business suit, the whole nine yards. I don't know if the intention was for the father to be the archetypal 80s era yuppie, but if it was not intentional, it certainly comes across that way. The way he talks, the things he says, the way he interacts with Bastion sort of fits the bill. He lectures his son on the need to stop daydreaming and drawing horses in his school books. The teacher told the father, yes, your son has been drawing horses in his school books. Bastion's distracted defense, he simply says, unicorns, they were unicorns. And he does this really weird, really messed up thing. He takes his hand, he crosses and twists his fingers in a way that I cannot imagine God intended for any mortal to be able to do. When I saw this as a kid, 
I tried to do it myself. I still feel it now every time it rains. So this is where we get our first glimpse of Bastion as a dreamer. This is also the point in the opening of the film where it's established as one of those oh moments when his father goes on to say, we cannot let your mother's recent death be an excuse for not getting our work done. We got to put our noses to the grindstone, move on with our lives, do what we have to do, work and school and things like that. Bastion really makes no obvious sign that he's listening or even cares what Daddy-O is saying, but Daddy-O apparently thinks otherwise because he gives this emotionally distanced, this small smile and says with self-satisfaction, well, I'm glad we had this little talk. He puts everything away and the dishes in the sink, off to work he goes, so... Bye-bye, Dad. And doesn't Bastion proceed to go to school lost in thought, per usual? Along the way to school, three other kids, these vicious little bullies that you just want to see get sucked up in this vortex, they taunt him. And then don't they pick him up and throw him into a dumpster? One of them even slaps the lid with both hands in triumph before they all high-five and walk off. Bastion climbs out dejectedly. He dusts himself off he picks up his backpack he proceeds to go his merry little way on to school when all of a sudden he sees these three flemwads again who apparently have nothing better to do they're just standing on the street corner waiting for him to come out of the dumpster so that they can turn to him and say to him threateningly hey who told you you could come out get back in there and they proceed to chase him down the street with the intention of throwing him right back into the dumpster Meanwhile, poor Bastion is calling out, no, not again, no, not again. And if any of this sounds awful and you're saying to yourself, geez, I'm crow, what the hell kind of movie does this show cover? Hang in there because this is where it gets good. Bastion is running away from the three of them. He suddenly bangs a fast turn through a door of a nearby store. He slams the door shut. Turns out that it is a door to a bookstore called Coriander's, Coriander's Bookstore, and within less than one second, less than one second, we see through the glass of this shut door, these three boneheads racing past this shut door, calling out, he went this way, he went this way, and they race past the door. How the hell the worst coordinated bully attack in the history of cinema plays out like this, these freaking idiots not even noticing as this a second down the street from them, he, that, he, that this kid opened a door, went through, slammed it loudly shut. And by the way, did I mention that the door has a bell? <laughs> this is a delightful, bona fide case of suspension of disbelief. But again, this is an 80s classic. So we go with it, or at least I do. So here is Bastion in the bookstore, catching his breath, when all of a sudden he hears this grouchy sounding voice call out, hey, who's there? Turns out to be Mr. Coriander, the bookstore owner. He's sitting at his desk and he's got in his hands this volume, this big book. He's got a pipe clenched in his teeth. He and Bastion have this dialogue exchange where Bastion lists off all of these different books that he reads and that he owns. He says, I have 186 books at home. And he lists off Lord of the Rings and Wizard of Oz and Treasure Island and Last of the Mohegans and Tarzan. And to cut to the chase, Mr. Coriander is impressed. And he says to him, have you ever felt like you are one of those characters, you know, in danger. And Bastion says, that's what I love about it, he says, is that I can be them. And the bookstore owner then says to him, don't you ever get afraid? And Bastion says, no, it's only a story. 
And then Mr. Coriander says, oh, he says, well, this book that I'm reading right here, it is not just a story. And Bastion, of course, looks confused and says, WTF. And Mr. Coriander says, don't worry about it. This book is not for you. Then, conveniently, the telephone rings to break up this strange conversation. Coriander goes, he answers it, presumably talking to a customer. He looks back, and not surprisingly, both Bastion and the book are gone. But Bastion did leave a note saying, don't worry, I'll return your book. And here is where we have what is for me, and always has been for me, one of the most intriguing and frustrating parts of the film. Frustrating because I wanted to know more, but the film just drops it. Mr. Coriander sees that the book is gone. He sees that Bastion is gone. And he smiles, this little cryptic smile, and he nods to himself with satisfaction. He's happy that Bastion took this book. So even when I saw this movie at the age of 10, I thought to myself, okay, so who is this guy and what's he all about and what's his role in all of this? This is the last we see of him. And I would have loved to have, I don't know, I just would have loved to have seen more of him maybe at the end of the film. But I suppose that the filmmakers were just hoping to focus solely on the kids, on the kid characters, which I get given the demographic, given the target audience. And of course, there is a small little moral tucked away in all of this. I quote film critic Leonard Malton, who said that this movie has, quote, a not so subtle message that reading is good, end quote. So Bastion, with this book tucked into his sweatshirt, he finally arrives at school late, of course. He runs down the hall in panic, goes to his classroom door. It's shut. He looks in through the glass. The teacher is, is handing out a math test. He says, uh, yeah later and so he decides to skip class he goes over and get this he opens the door to the attic of the building and unnoticed he goes he goes inside he shuts the attic door behind him he locks the door behind him the door locks from the outside and so he goes up he's locked himself in the school attic he goes up to uh to the to the loft and he settles in with his lunch the book a blanket that he finds and he proceeds to begin reading the never-ending story. And here's where I need to hit the pause button because, and I say this, I say this with all of the fondness in the world that I have to offer for this flick. This has got to be the worst run school in the history of education. The attic door is open for any Yahoo to walk in and it locks from the outside so anyone can lock themselves in. And there are candles and matches up there that he finds and uses for better lighting. So hopefully the school forks over enough in liability premiums. But back to Mr. Coriander, the bookstore owner. I don't know if he has a bigger role in the book that this movie is based on. I do know that he does return in the first sequel, The Neverending Story, Pat 2. There was also a third one, but I don't think he is in the third one. Total disclaimer, I never saw Pat 2. I never saw Pat 3. So... I don't know. You tell me if you're familiar with the sequel. Maybe Mr. Coriander's character is more fleshed out in the second installment. I don't know. I just remember that for both the second and the third, they recast all of the kids' roles. So by that point, I wasn't interested at the time. I think Pat 2 is 1990, so that would have been, what, six years later? 
by that point, I was just too cool. <laughs> part three, part three, recast all the kids' roles a second time. That was 1994. So that would have been a full decade after the original. But judging from the original alone, I would have liked to have seen more of Mr. Coriander. What was that smile and nod all about? Did he know that Bastion would come in that morning? Was he just waiting for any bookworm kid to show up and it just happened to be Bastion? Did the Empress in the book, did she put him up to it? Is Mr. Coriander a character in the book who just like magically comes out? Did the Empress know that Bastion was going to be going into the bookstore? Was Mr. Coriander happy that Fantasia now has a chance to be saved? Did he know that Fantasia was in trouble? Is he just happy that he's got some kid reading the book? I mean, we'll probably never know. I get it that they, again, just wanted to keep the focus on the kid, but still for overly analytical souls like myself, these are important questions. So Bastion begins reading the never-ending story up in the school attic because, hey, who hasn't? And the film then shifts into depicting everything that he's reading, very much in the same vein as The Princess Bride. So in the magical land of Fantasia, the first three characters we meet, we first meet a character named Teeny Weenie, Teeny Weenie, he wears a top hat and he rides a racing snail like a jockey. The actor who plays him goes by the name Deep Roy, R-O-Y, and he is the actor who plays the Oompa Loompa in the Johnny Depp version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 2005. There's also a second character we meet called the Night Hob, H-O-B, who is kind of sort of humanoid. He's green, kind of like the green giant and the pecans. He gets around on his own form of transportation in the form of a huge bat that he uses as sort of a sort of a makeshift hang glider, if you will. Then the third character we meet is the rock biter. He is made of stone. He eats rocks. He rides a stone bicycle. I don't know if there was a secret message in there about the evils of cannibalism or what, but he is a rock who eats rocks. So this magical world of Fantasia, these three characters and everybody who lives in this magical land of Fantasia, including the child warrior Atreyu and the childlike empress of Fantasia, they are all in trouble because everyone in Fantasia has lost their imaginations, their willingness to dream. I guess you could say that they think like Bastion's father, you know, keep your feet in the ground, cease and desist, the nonsensical whimsy, get the groundwork done and stop daydreaming, stop dreaming, dreaming is a waste of time. And so you have in Fantasia this indescribable force that they call the nothing that is slowly spreading throughout the land and it's about to consume it, to destroy it. The Empress is falling ill and dying from this mysterious nothingness. So the warrior Atreyu is tasked with trying to find a cure for her. He has no idea what the hell he is looking for in this quest, only that he needs to find, that he needs to save Fantasia by finding her some cure. I do want to mention this, and again, spoilers, along the way, he has his horse with him, his horse named Artak, A-R-T-A-K. At one point, they reach what is called the Swamps of Sadness. Please riddle me this one. How the hell can a movie geared towards kids, hope to encourage viewers never to despair, never to give up, hang on to your dreams, be optimistic, by showing them in probably the most traumatizing way possible, 
what happens when you do give in to despair and can't pull yourself out of it. That's what happens with the swamps of sadness. Whoever crosses it without sinking is said to have grit and determination, while those who let the sadness get to them, they just sink like so much like Titanic. I don't know, but something tells me that that kind of a metaphor probably has not aged too well. And again, spoiler alert, but that's what happens to Atreus' horse, Artak. You see Atreus screaming and crying, trying to pull the horse out of this damn swamp, but the horse goes down. What the actual F is that supposed to accomplish for kids other than nightmares and trauma? I don't know. All I do know is that everybody I ever talked to when I was in grade school, we all hated this scene and it was something we could not shake free from until we were at least driving. But it was 1984 and that's what they did. So, oh, but don't worry, Atreyu does find a new friend. So he he replaces Artek. So isn't that good? Uh, <laughs> he finds this magical creature called a luck dragon. It's this flying dragon with a puppy dog's head that that I thought at the age of 10 was just about the coolest creature that I had ever seen in a movie. And I had seen the Dark Crystal by that point. Interesting behind the scenes thing about this luck dragon, whose name is Falkor, F-A-L-K-O-I. Initially, it was a miniature rubber jointed model, but apparently as the film's production uh, proceeded, it became this 43 foot long motorized thingamajig. So, I just wanted to throw that little factoid in there. Of course, the film reaches its big climax. The coup de gras is the imminent destruction of Fantasia as the nothing edges closer and closer. And Bastion has a decision to make. Does he keep his feet on the ground or does he let his imagination run rampant? I won't say anything beyond that in terms of what happens other than this moonchild. You are welcome. That is his mother's name, Moonchild. He screams this name amidst claps of thunder and the sound of a storm, rain pelting to the ground. He opens the window and he screams out, Moonchild! And you can barely hear it with the loud climactic music, with the sound effect of the thunder. When I was a kid, we were all trying to figure out what the heck this name was. None of us could figure it out. I will put myself on the line here. My credibility, my reputation here. I will tell you that at the age of 10, I thought that he was screaming out Montreal, like Montreal. I was like, his mother's name was Montreal. So what's his father's name? Toronto. As many times as I tried, as I rewound and rewound and rewound, we could just never figure it out. It wasn't until about six years ago when I finally found out, thanks to the internet, that the name is in fact Moonchild. One other little Behind the scenes factoid about the never ending story. Complete tangent here, totally new topic of discussion. So forgive the rapid transition. Robert Hathaway is the name of the music editor of the film. He happens to be the father of Noah Hathaway who plays Atreyu in the film. The film is directed and co-written by Wolfgang Peterson. As far as what the cast is up to now, Noah Hathaway, he is now a professional dancer as well as a tattoo artist. 
Barrett Oliver, who plays Bastion, he had roles as a child actor the following year in Ron Howard's 1985 film Cocoon and the 1988 sequel. His final acting role was in 1989's Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Now, as an adult, he is a photographic historian. He, interesting, he specializes in 1800s photographic technology. Last but not least, Tammy Stronach, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She was 11 years old when she played the Empress in this film. She was not a professional actress. She did some community theater. Once the filming of her scenes ended, she went back to high school. She was in a theater company for seven years. She toured the US. The company was called The Flying Machine. Eventually, once she finished high school, she became a dancer. In fact, she had for a while her own company, the Tammy Stronach Dance Company. She was on the faculty at Marymount, at Marymount Manhattan College. Marymount Manhattan College. She taught dance there. And today she runs the Paper Canoe Company, which focuses on children's theater. So good for all three of them. They all seem to have reached their own personal definitions of fulfillment and success. And who could ask for anything more out of life? I will close by, I will not sing for you, do not worry, but I will close by reciting for you the first verse. Actually, I think it's the second verse. Well, it's a verse from the fan favorite theme song to The NeverEnding Story. The name of the song is The NeverEnding Story. Reach the stars, fly a fantasy, dream a dream, and what you see will be. Rhymes that keep their secrets will unfold behind the clouds, and there upon a rainbow is the answer to a never-ending story. So send in your response to the trivia question, true or false, the author of the book hated the film. Give me your thoughts on The NeverEnding Story. If you have seen the sequels, please fill me in. Tell me about them. What did I miss? Tell me about your thoughts on A Quiet Place 2. I take requests if you have any. So until the next episode, keep on screening and I will see you.